under the Ancien Regime, absolute rule remained vaguely tied to the medieval idea of the king's two bodies, his personal body natural being inseparable from the supra-personal body politic of the state. You've seen these portraits before and aware of that. This concept, as studied by Ernst Kantorowicz, conveniently minimizes problems of political and visual representation. The prototypical state portrait of Louis XIV by Legault on the left thus is as much the visual representation of the man as that of the state which he supposedly was identical with, l'état seigneur. As suggested by Calais' portrait of Louis XVI on the right, this formula remained unchanged to the French Revolution. In May 1789, the same Louis XVI found himself facing the delegates of the kingdom's estates general. Nobility, clergy, and commoners were supposed to deliberate on matters regarding their particular interests only. So the engraving does not show a redefined, multi-personal body politic yet. Precisely this, however, had been the conviction of much of the Third Estates electorate, shared by the larger part of the 600 commoners they sent to Versailles. After a few weeks of deliberation, they put this idea into practice, declaring themselves the National Assembly, a body of delegates now representing the French in their entirety, or, in other words, the nation. This indeed meant integration into the national body politic, and the visual arts now faced a problem which was to persist throughout the revolution, how to represent the representatives. As long as France remained a constitutional monarchy, it retained the king as head of state. He appointed the government from outside, but responsible to the National Assembly. From September 1792 to October 1795, however, the delegates themselves wielded executive power, declaring France a republic, putting the king on trial, and downgrading ministers to mere office clerks. The lawmakers turned into rulers. One would assume political portraiture under the National Convention, in particular, to be collective in nature rather than individual. But in the first half of my paper, I shall demonstrate that this was not the case. It was in London, rather than in Paris, that a collective portrait of representatives was painted and exhibited. In the second part, I shall explore the main reason for this. The political space of representative democracy became the stage for direct action by those represented instead, both in reality and in the visual arts. To the benefit of history painters, popular insurgency, a subject more dynamic, varied, and uh, picturesque, undermined the visually abstract, comparatively pale and static principle of democratic representation. Direct action, it should be noted, almost from the beginning competed with politics by deliberation. The constitutional revolution of the delegates in Versailles as François Fury called it, was soon followed by the municipal revolution in Paris, staged by that larger, notoriously ill-defined group of historical actors called the people. 
From the day the Bastille was taken on July 14, 1789, this and subsequent outbursts of popular sovereignty came to define the French Revolution. No legislative act, however revolutionary, could ever match the showiness of unmediated armed rebellion. these introductory remarks, I shall now take a look at a few early visual, visual representations of delegates. Series of engraved portraits with uniform formats and frames made use of a scheme that had already been employed for historical figures, for actors, and for dancers. Within weeks after the opening of the Estates General, the publisher Nicolas-François Le Vacher organized the first organized a set of draftsmen and engravers, and in July 1789, the first of his mezzotins were up for sale. Similar ventures soon followed suit, one of them produced by two of the physiotas artists we just heard about. I'm showing you a portrait from the Le Vacher series, Left, and it might be worth mentioning that one of its two engravers, Antoine-Francois Sergent, three years later was to become a delegate to the National Convention himself. To the right you see a sample from the most accomplished of these series, engraved by Gabriel Fiesinger until his, until his migration to London in mid-1792. <clears throat> to portrait painters working in oils, establishing collectivity through uniformity and seriality was no option. The number of legislators remained in the hundreds. There never was any official state-sponsored portraiture of deputies, and the art market did not offer any business model for such an undertaking, unless portraits were meant to be engraved and reproduced in print. Orders were privately placed by individual lawmakers, and sometimes better-known legislators were portrayed free of charge for advertising purposes in the next salon. What may seem surprising is that few individual portraits, portraits actually situated their sitters within the space of representative democracy. This portrait by Louis-Léopold Boilly, painted in 1792, showing an acting president gesturing into the assembly hall below him, is one of the rare exemptions. Uh, you know the costume by now, we talked about that yesterday. <coughs> As a rule, references to their public function were minimized or even entirely absent. One of the reasons became clear once legislators adopted the uniform in 1795, as art critics voiced their disapproval of privately commissioned portraits of lawmakers in their official costume, pointing out that when sitting, they did so as private citizens and solely at their own wish. After Adelaide Lavinia exhibited no less than 14 individual portraits of deputies in the Salon of 1791, Jean-Louis Laneuville, an enigmatic student of David, only recently studied for the first time, even specialized in portraits of lawmakers. All of them were Jacobins, should be noted, and so was the painter himself. Setting them <coughs> Against a nondescript background, Lanneville's characters 
Lamabeer characterizes his legislators as indistinct model citizens, sober, intense, and attentive. This portrait of Herodes Seychelles being a good example, save for the confrontational stare, the usual one, being mellowed into an empty gaze. Like at least three other of Lamabeer's sitters, Herod became one of the twelve who ruled to quote the classic study on the, Committee of, on the Committee of Public Security by Robert Palmer. Created on March 1793 and soon radicalized after reshuffle, the Committee of Public Safety holding its sessions in the Palais Egalité, formerly known as the Palais Royal, functioned as the National Convention's dictatorial board. The French Revolution ever brought together a group of representatives worth a collective portrait, this, of course, was it. Pierre Michon, in a short novel published in 2009, Les actually tried to suggest what such a group portrait of the Committee of Public Safety, if painted after Hérault de Sachel had been sent to the guillotine, might have looked like. Even though Michon's fictitious painter implausibly nicknamed the Tiepolo of the Terror <laughs> is clearly modeled after Fragonard, descriptions of this imaginary masterpiece suggest the novelist rather had the words of Lanneville in mind. So why did this painting remain a modern writer's invention? We are to believe the anonymous Aquarel to the left. The Committee of Public Safety wasn't entirely shrouded in secrecy, as visitors to the Palais Egalité were allowed to a sort of anteroom, thus kept at a distance. One might easily imagine a painter moving into the flag rooms in order to produce something along the line of Francisco de Goya's later rendition of a different junta that of the Spanish company of the Philippines, to the right here. And if Goya offers one possible artistic solution, another portraitist who had left Paris in 1791 even portrayed a much larger assembly. In a way, this collective portrait of the British equivalent of the convention, the House of Commons, begun in 1793 and finished two years later is the one work of art which the French Revolution failed to produce. <clears throat> Admittedly, this might not look like much of a loss. <laughs> <coughs> Anton Hegel's integration of no less than 96 individually recognizable members of parliament into a 15-foot canvas comes at a cost difficult to overlook. <laughs> On the other hand, Hickel found a workable solution by ignoring the backbenchers and by vaguely animating his portrait as William Pitt the Younger, that's here, confronts the opposition in a speech. Whatever its shortcomings, the private exhibition of this work seems to have been a success. According to the Times, it attracted, quote, general admiration, and a numerous attendance of the most fashionable nobility." Unquote. Clearly, 
Henry was emulating the business model of John Singleton Copley, <coughs> who had painted the death of the Earl of Chatham in 1781. A private exhibition with an entrance fee, showing a single painting with plenty of portraits of well-known people, and subscriptions for a large engraving the size, one of his sitters noted, of that of the death of Lord Chatham. <coughs> a key <coughs> to the success of Copley's success, a key to, to Copley's success, excuse me, had been the inclusion of 55 individual portraits. And Hickel almost doubled his number. Of the two possible choices, history painting within the space of an assembly against collective portraiture of such an assembly, the French Revolution clearly preferred the former. The print of the Copley's composition was only published in May 1791 and cannot have had any influence on its French counterpart, which was first exhibited in the studio of David beginning in June the same year. Yet the two parliamentary paintings by Copley and Hickel provide a convenient bridge to the second half of my paper, in which I shall address the preference for history painting over collective portraiture for reasons thoroughly political in nature. As has been noted by Philip Baud and others, the oath of the tennis court in many ways resembles Copley's earlier painting. Both works focus on one of the not-so-frequent instances of physical action in an assembly. Uh, we are not yet uh, in the days of fist-fighting in Parliament. <laughs> and both artists try to find a compromise between contemporary history painting and collective portraiture. Thus David's depiction of the defiant founding act of the French parliamentarism on June 20th, 1789 three days before the delegates officially declared themselves the National Assembly, both is and is not a group portrait. David's arrangement of the delegates allows for some 30 to 50 to 40 individual portraits, primarily, but not only, in the foreground. In the center, there's Bailly, the first president of the National Assembly, there's Robespierre, there's Mirabeau, there's Barnard, and there are many others. Yet portraiture was not the main concern, as becomes clear by the inconveniently raised arms frequently blocking our view. David's drawing was shown in the Salon of 1791, at a time when the National Assembly had finally consented to cover the expenses for the canvas which the painter however, never finished. It remained a singular work of art because this was the first and the last time. The representatives were the main figures acting within the space of democratic politics. In future works, the key actors would be those penetrating into the space from outside, legitimated by something other than elections.
and a sudden outburst of civil war. After the overthrow of the municipal government on the night of August 9, 1792, the next morning, citizen soldiers from the National Guard fought their way into the Tuileries Palace. The royal family fled into the assembly hall next door, eventually ending up in the stenographer's booth, and thus behind iron bars. It's you. <coughs> the assembly's protocols, protocol reveal a chaotic day with cannon and gunfire next door, with messengers, witnesses and guards every 10 minutes admitted in, and finally, a delegation from the insurgent city council at the head of this uprising. <clears throat> François Gérard's visual representation of the event was one of the entries for the state competition of April 1794, which was organized by the Committee of Public Safety and called for works of art glorifying the deeds of the revolution. The key figures are anonymous representatives of a larger mass, the people, shown as a choice of armed insurgents, both National Guard soldiers and sans-culotte irregulars, two of them wounded, a boy with a drawn sword, and a woman. <coughs> Some of those are to the left of this. <laughs> Sorry for that. Their heroicized thrust into the assembly hall is frantically greeted by the spectators on the galleries. And all the representatives here have to do is to acknowledge the will of the people. Confronted with the armed populace, they are either cheering or shown helpless, indignated, and in terror. And in this, Gerard's drawing is emblematic for a drastic shift towards popular sovereignty. I'm quite confident that many of the legislators would have been individually portrayed but so far, only the acting president at the desk on the right, it's the man here, has been tentatively identified as Elie Wadé or Pia Vignon. All the presidents that day, however, were moderate Girondins. None of them was to survive the terror. Around the president's desk, the Girondin majority deplores the events the Jacobin minority applauds by waving their heads. So this is the Jacobin fraction. <coughs> Gérard's entry eventually won him the first prize in the state competition. And the painter was promised 20,000 francs for the execution of a large canvas, which, again, never materialized. His glorification of popular insurgency meant discarding representative democracy. And this was a development shaping the entire competition. Of its 122 entries, only two treated an event, the National Convention's acceptance of the Constitution of 1793, suited to glorify the representatives. The others showed the people at work. <coughs> and surprisingly, the armed electorate reappears in multiple other entries, of which I'm showing you an example engraved two years later. The insurrection of May 31st to June 2nd, 1793, saw the convention surrounded by the National Guard and forced to expel the main Girondin representatives. Outside the assembly hall, the acting president, that's the same Hérode Sechel, whom you remember from his portrait by La 
revealed. Makes a vain attempt to break the siege. In the foreground, one of the better known Jacobins of the convention, Jean-Paul Marat, here, tries to calm two of the armed radicals. Their demands would be met. It should be noted that only two days before the uprising, the convention itself had in fact recognized insurrection as a constitutional right in its Declaration of the Rights of Man. Accordingly, the Constitution, these new Jacobin, the new Jacobin majority now worked out, made rising up both a right and even a duty of the citizen. Quote, when the government violates the right of the people, insurrection is the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties. Unquote. This constitution, was <coughs> Sorry. this constitution was decreed and suspended the same day, and soon the Committee of Public Safety helped the convention regain control over the armed populace. The committee's overthrow in July 1794 was the work of the legislators themselves, and only once did a popular insurrection penetrate into the assembly hall again. On May 20, 1795, the most grisly scene of the Prairial insurrection presented itself during the invasion of the National Convention by protesters. Decades later, it was to become the subject of a number of history paintings, but during the revolution itself, this was regarded unfit for such a representation, as it pitted the unpopular Tangerian leadership against the populace simply perceived as a threat now. At the entrance to the assembly hall, the protesters had killed the legislator, Jean-Martin Ferraud, and paraded his head on top of a pike in front of the acting president. It's barely recognizable, but there's the pike here, there's the head, and there's the president. Needless to say that the next constitution did not mention any right, let alone duty, insurrection. In fact, the delegitimizing of democratic representation, which I have just outlined, was followed by a similar disillusionment with popular sovereignty, leading to the contraction of the space of democratic politics. With this I'm coming to a close, though I would like to finish by signaling the not-so-subtle irony of the most ambiguous piece of collective portraiture of representatives being created a few years after the revolution was declared over. The Committee of Public Safety had been set up by the National Convention as an emergency government, but collective leadership remained problematic even after the Directoire and the Consulate constitutionalized this form of government, one by election, the other by, well, self-appointment. Again, there were no official group portraits of the Republic's leaders. As always, it was left to the print market to come up with a few improvised solutions. <coughs> In January 1802, however, elected representatives from Italy convened in Lyon, tasked with the adoption of a new constitution for the Italian Republic under a new president, Napoleon Bonaparte then already first consul of France. They 
Israeli painter Nicolas André Monsieur was given the task to paint this so-called consulta and chose to eliminate most of the 400, more than 400 delegates in favor of a choice solution. <clears throat> Indeed, he succeeded in conveying the idea of a deliberation among Democrats legitimated by elections on, that is, on the left half of the canvas. The right half, of course, shows something quite different. By the time Monsieur finished his painting, Bonaparte seated on a throne rather than chairing the session as its acting president, had become emperor and king of Italy. In a way, the experiment of representative democracy was over the very moment an artistic solution for its visualization had already been found. Thank you for your patience.